Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my next podcast guest, I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to my earlier episodes. And if you haven't, please consider listening to the eight episodes I've recorded since August of 2019. Some of my guests included Gary Rappaport, Ray Ritchie, Richard Lake, Cab Grayson, and Steve Lusgarten, along with Kathy Bonifay, and uh, most recently, Bill Hard. So I hope you have a chance to listen to those. For episode nine, I'm pleased to introduce Tom Bazzuto, who's chair of the Bazzuto Group that he formed in 1988 with his partners, John Slidell and Rick Mostyn. Tom is uh, not only the chair of the company, but he's now the chief cultural officer of the Bazzuto Group. The company has grown from up to 1,500 employees now with offices up and down the East Coast from Boston to Florida, but he also manages properties in the Midwest as well in Chicago and the Chicago and Milwaukee markets. He has now 80,000 units under management, the company leads. So together with Tom and me, I've invited our ULI mentees to join us. 14 of them, including, and also some Bazuto employees are in the audience and they ask questions at the end. Three of them do. We also get into his philosophies, his origin story in Connecticut through Hobart College to Vietnam, into Syracuse to graduate school, and then in 1971, starting with HUD, and then the James W. Rouse Company in mortgage banking, and then his movement to development with Oxford Development Company, first in Boston and then Washington, D.C., leading the regional development team, which then in 1986 caused real issues due to the tax law changes. And then he started his own firm in 1988 as a result of several circumstances that we discussed. So the company has grown significantly since 1988, as I said. We talk about his philosophy, and he has written a new book called Reflections of an Ordinary Man that talk about his ideas and his philosophies in 85 aphorisms that he writes, little stories about in each section of the book. It's a very good story. And we end up with the questions that the ULI mentees offer. So without further ado, please enjoy Tom Bazzuto. Welcome, Tom. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, John. Happy and, to be here. Uh, today we have uh, Tom Bazzuto and we have a, an audience of uh, young leaders from ULI joining us today. We'll be silent for at least the first 45 minutes to an hour or so, and then we're going to open it up for questions a little bit later on today. So, Tom... You, uh, you transitioned to chairman a couple of years of the Bazuto Group. How do you see your role today, and how does it feel to have your son succeeding you running the day-to-day business? 
John, thank you very much. It's it's wonderful of you to do this, and I'm um, I'm honored to to uh, have the opportunity to be talking with these young folks. How does it feel? It feels wonderful. I've said numerous times that that the only thing that can be more gratifying than having your successor be one of your family, one of your children, is to have that successor doing a better job than you ever hoped to do yourself. Toby's doing a great job, and I'm very, very pleased and very proud of what the company has been able to accomplish in the past three to four years. As to what I do, one thing I did was to get out of, the, of this office. I, I felt if I kept coming in here every day, no one would believe that Toby <laughs> was running the business. So I got another office. Uh, it's actually on the water in Baltimore. And, and uh, I quite like the fact that my commute after 40 years, 45 years, whatever it is, is finally uh, only a half hour, 20 minutes. I still get up, put a tie on every day. I am still engaged in the company's business every day, as well as a fair amount of community business. I call myself the chief cultural officer of the company because part of what I do is I've always visited properties. I've always spent a day a week at least visiting properties. Sometimes now it's as much as two days a week. I think that's really, really important to do. I come in here to our Greenbelt office for at least once a week for investment committee meetings, which is when we review every project we're doing and talk about changes in it, updates, decisions that need to be made. So I continue to be very active. I continue to talk to Toby and give him counsel routinely, whether he accepts it or not is uh, his decision and will remain (laughs) private. Well, that's great. So, Tom, could we then move back now in in history and go to your origins? Where did you grow up and how did your family influence you growing up? Any unusual family history or stories to, to share that relate to you know, what you ended up doing? I grew up in a, um, I guess what I'd call a typical American working class family. My dad and mom were very hardworking people. There were four, four kids, but sort of two generations. I, have a, I had a sister and a brother, both born before World War II. My parents then spent you know, the latter years of the, of the Depression and World War II concentrating on trying to make a living. My father worked in a factory making bullets during World War II. Really? And um, it was a brass mill. Even as we grew up, my dad worked in a factory. And, he, you know, we, we think we work hard. My dad used to go to work at 11 o'clock at night. And he'd work really? till to 7 in the morning. He would come home and have breakfast with us. But being a bit of an entrepreneur himself, he had an oil truck. And so after we'd go off to school, he'd go out and deliver oil for a couple of hours. Now, this is after being awake all night long. He'd then come home around 11 in the morning and he'd sleep through till 5 o'clock when we'd get home from school. And then he'd come out and throw baseball with us, football with us. And then the family would have a meal together. And the, the entire time he was doing that, my mother would be either taking care of the family or cooking. It was a typical Italian household. Where, where, um, where did you grow up? What, what town? A place called Waterbury, Connecticut. Waterbury, was, okay. It was a, uh, I mean, it was, you know, if we were poor, uh, we didn't think of ourselves as poor. We were, but 
but but you know, I always tell the story that when my wife and I moved to Baltimore or moved to this area, and we we did that in 1971, we had $370 to our name. And we, in fact, had $10,000 in student loans, which if you do a an adjustment to today, uh, by the way, is worth $70,000 today. But, you know, we paid that off within, by the time we were 30. And, you know, we worked, both worked hard. And we've been very fortunate. That's great. So you attended high school there? Went to a public high school, you know, played football, sort of the, you the, did. the typical thing. I'm captain of the football team, but my education was mediocre. So your leadership started then, <clears throat> to some extent. I, I suppose so. It really started, yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it did, but I, I think it really started at college. You know, I went to a place called Hobart College. And Hobart's a relatively small school, 2,000 kids today. Back then it was fourteen or 1,500. Very hands-on. And I always joke, John, that I was never there for a semester when I wasn't on the dean's list. And before anybody thinks I'm bragging, the first year and a half, it was the dean's list of people on academic probation. <laughs> you get a letter every month, every quarter saying, you're about to be thrown out. <laughs> but then one of the faculty members, a fellow by the name of Walter Rawls, took me aside and, you know, gave me a compliment that I had never, I had never gotten a compliment on my mind before, on my intellect. And it really... It was like a laying on of hands. From that point forward, I guess I got the confidence I needed. Um, I what did was, he say? <laughs> he said I was the toughest-minded son of a bitch I had ever had. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't sure it was a compliment. I had to ask him to explain, and it was a compliment coming from him. But what he meant was, I, you know, I sort of drilled down to the bottom of an issue without getting caught in the, um, in the weeds. In any case, I got very involved in student government. We talk about leadership. My my senior year. Um, to keep in mind, this was 1968, and everything you've heard about 1968 yeah. and 69 was true. And we abolished our student government, mm -hmm. and I was appointed as the student body's representative to the administration. Wow! And I I now chair the board up at Hobart. Right. And William Smith, and, and I met one of the old trustees from, from years ago and pointed out to him that the first time I had met him, I had been standing outside of their meeting demanding that they all be fired. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it comes full circle. That's funny. So you were very obviously very active, and you were a, you were a, uh, were you involved in sports there too? I played football in my uh, freshman year, uh -huh. and I played half of my sophomore year, and then I decided that even as Division Three, they were taking it all far too seriously, <laughs> and I wouldn't. I just wasn't willing to put in the hours they were putting in, uh, and it was interfering with student government activities and other things that I was doing. So, coming out of Hobart, then what happened? Well, you can't, you got to go back to Hobart. My senior year, I actually was a pretty serious student, and, and, and even though I wasn't very good, I was very serious, and, and got involved in protest movements and, and the like. In 1968, in 
in the spring of my senior year in college, Bobby Kennedy got killed. And at the time, I happened to be supporting him. I was, everybody else was supporting Gene McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I was supporting Bobby Kennedy, and he got killed. And then Martin Luther King got killed. That's right. And the cities erupted in riots. So with the mentoring of another member of the faculty, I decided that I wanted to spend my career trying to do something to make cities a better place. And you sort of had to be there, but the cities were burning all over America. And every time you turn television on, there were riots in Los Angeles, there were riots in New York, there were riots in Baltimore. And so I applied to and got into a number of graduate schools, but I wanted to go to the best graduate school I could in public administration because I thought that if you were going to deal with the city's problems, you had to do it working for the government. That was the time that HUD was being created. The housing bill had been passed by Johnson. So I went to the Maxwell School up in Syracuse and got a degree in urban affairs and public administration. And convoluted long story, I was drafted out of there, came back, finished, finished graduate school there. And that, when I finished, I was offered a job in Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Richmond by the people at HUD. And I ended up deciding that for a whole variety of reasons that Baltimore was the place we wanted to be. So we moved down here in the uh, fall of 1971. So you spent how many years at Syracuse? Two? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I started my, my, I started my degree in 1968. I finished in 1971. And it was a one-year program. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, in my first year, I, uh, I got a fellowship, a Ford Foundation fellowship, to go to Calcutta, India, to work oh, in really? the city planning department. And I thought, boy, if there's anything that prepares you to work for the government in a city planning situation where the city is oh, a mess. This. Wow. So I, but I had a problem, which was that my draft deferment was expiring in January. So in December of 1968, I went to the draft board and there was, um, and, and I at the time had longer hair and a lot more of it than I have today. And I had a beard. And I went in, and this blue-haired lady who looked, you know, who chaired the draft board looked at me and said, Sonny, if you want to go to Southeast Asia, we'll be happy to send you in a uniform. And I said, no, 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 I want to go to East Asia. That's where India is. Two weeks later, I was drafted. So I, she got her way. I, I went to Southeast Asia, spent a year in Vietnam, came home, and... Um, Thank God. Came home and uh, had the opportunity to finish graduate school at that point. So was what was Vietnam like for you? You know, I sort of have to thank Hobart for this, too. I, I got to Vietnam. My, I, I had decided that I was going to be an enlisted man, that, that I that didn't like giving orders. I surely didn't like taking orders. And I wanted to do it as quickly as possible. And as an enlisted man, you could do it in two years. If you signed up for OCS, it was three years. When I arrived in Vietnam, my military designation, my MOS, as as military guys call it, 
was our field artillery. And I had an assignment to become a forward observer with one of the battalions. So, you, you know, you spend typical army, you arrive and then you sit around waiting for your orders to be executed. It was, it was sitting around with a bunch of other guys and, you know, spent maybe two weeks in Saigon. And then finally, the day we were supposed to ship out, we were all assembled. We were sitting in bleachers like they have at high school football games. There were probably 45 guys all waiting to go one direction or another. And, these, and, and this old NCO came over and said, does anybody here have a degree in journalism? And contrary to everything you'll ever hear about the military that says don't volunteer, I immediately raised my hand. And fortunately, I was the only one who raised my hand. So they took me over to the information office where I went through a series of interviews, at the end of which I sat down again with this old NCO. And he said, you lied to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, you don't have a degree in journalism. I said, no, but I've got a degree in, uh, in English from Hobart. I've written for the newspaper. I've written for the yearbook. I write well, don't I? He said, well, you do write well, but I don't like the fact that you lied to me. So what we'll do is we're going we're gonna, to we'll, we'll give you this position as a combat correspondent, but don't ever let me catch you lying to me again. So what they wanted me to do was lie to everybody else, but not to <laughs> um, So I then spent the next 12 months riding around in helicopters, writing stories about, you know, about what I was seeing over there. So you learned a lot doing that then, I imagine. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, I learned an awful lot. It was, a, it was a fascinating experience, absolutely fascinating experience. I mean, horrible at the time, but you, you know, but very edifying, educational. It really was. I imagine so. Oh, my goodness. So you joined HUD after your two years, your master's degree. And so that obviously got you going in the real estate sector. It did get me going in the real estate sector. And, and, but it got me, again, I, I almost want to make a distinction between real estate and housing. Yep. I, I was a houser. Um, and and I, I mean, and that's the way I, you know, sort of thought of myself. That was my career was to be a houser, to deal with the housing problems of poor people. That was how I got into this. That was what I wanted to do. But what I learned working for HUD, you need to understand there was an organization called the Federal Housing Administration that came out of the 30s. HUD was created in the late 60s and they were merged. And you talk about two cultures that didn't blend well, uh, it was those. I mean, the FHA was, you know, was a, an organization that would not lend in black neighborhoods. It would, you know, I mean, it was has an awful, awful history. They did some good things. I don't mean to minimize it. But then you had HUD, which was made up of all these young people who looked like me, who, you know, wanted to change the world and save the cities. And, and so you, you had this cultural clash. And there was, I, I ended up being a pretty good example of it because I was promoted three times in two years, which is really pretty good in, in government service. But I was also investigated by the, first of all, I had a complaint filed against me by the union. They said I was coming in too late, but the real issue was that I was working too many hours. I 
had an investigation <laughs> done of me by the Inspector General, really, and ultimately had a, 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 a was investigated. I was twenty four years old, but I was investigated by the FBI, and I never forget two FBI guys putting me in a corner up against the glass wall, and I don't like heights, and and um, it was a solid wall of glass. And saying, one of them said to me, we can't find that you did anything wrong, but nobody works as hard as you worked in government unless they're crooked. So we're convinced you're crooked. So, so, you had, so at that point, I said, you know, I think I may want to change careers. So, so, so I stayed there another six months, and that's what led me to join the Rouse Company. I decided that... You know, if I were going to save the cities, if I were going to live life that offered challenge and opportunity, I probably wasn't going to do it in government. So uh, was it Jim Rouse that attracted you to the Rouse Company, or was it just the, the business of mortgage banking, or what, it was, what was it? It was Jim Rouse. It was what the Rouse Company was doing, and I was intrigued. The job I was offered was mortgage banking. And in fact, despite everything I just said about being a houser, the deal that I made with them when I was hired was I didn't want to work on housing. Really? Um, because I wanted to really understand, I wanted to develop a skill. I had gotten to be a master of the process while at Hunt. I had gotten to, be, I had gotten to know government. an awful lot of the public officials. I had gotten to know most of the developers who were doing business with them and the mortgage bankers. But I didn't have a skill. And so I went to work at Rouse in the mortgage banking group, James W. Rouse Company, and learned how to finance commercial real estate and learned, uh, really learned about leverage. These are not things that were very well taught in uh, public administration school. And even in my role as a generalist at HUD, they were not. Taught so it was a great it was a great learning experience to learn about return risk adjusted return to learn about leverage but most importantly the thing I learned that has guided my entire career is the importance of relationships Rouse at the time had correspondent relationships and what that meant was. They had insurance companies primarily with whom they, they had exclusive relationships. The insurance company would not do any lending in, that, in the Washington market with anybody other than them. That was the nature of the business back then. And you developed very close personal relationships with the people at these companies. One of those companies that we started doing business with, I did my first deal with, was Cigna. And that was in 1973, 74. That was a loan, I assume. It was a loan. Oh, yeah, it was all debt at the time. We didn't do any equity. But Cigna, to this day, is one of the Pazuka Group's principal partners. We've done business with them over and over. And I won't tell you, it's the same people. I mean, a lot of the, all the people I dealt with. Well, it was Connecticut General at that time, I believe. It was. It was before the merger with INA. Right. But but even then, the people who were at Connecticut General went through the merger, but they've all retired. Right. People 
and institutions like that tend to Let me just segue just for a moment. Tom and I met in 1987, a year after he started the company here. And I was pro- <laughs> I approached him as a mortgage banker. And I worked for the company, the Rouse Company, evolved to what's now known as Columbia National. And they were our number one competitor. <laughs> so Tom and I met. And I came in and Tom looked at me and he said, John, my best friend works at Columbia National, so you probably won't get much business from me. <laughs> we are, you know, we we built this company on relationships and loyalty. And, That's right. And it's and it's and it's worked out. You know, and we, we deal with our banks that way. And you know, I'm not gonna say this is the only way to do it. I know there are a lot of people who've done it other ways. I just think it's the best way for us to do it and that's we have three or four banks five that we work with and we we don't go out to the world looking for capital for our projects we go to those banks we try to make sure everyone relationships is taken care of and we'll go to somebody and say you know it really is your turn so give us a decent offer and you know and it's your deal Relationships and the guidance of managing those relationships has really benefited our company. So you were James W. Rouse for how many years? Two. 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 And then how did the development bug hit you then? There were a couple of things. One is we wanted to get back to New England. We didn't love the mid-Atlantic area. Really? And I say we only... Any guy who's married knows that he, particularly a guy who's been married 50 years, knows that no matter who was pulling the strings, you always say we. Um, it was my <laughs> wife who wanted to go back to New England, particularly. And so that was one side of it. The other was I, and this is no disrespect meant to the mortgage banking business, but for me, Keep in mind where I started in 68, I still didn't feel like I was having the kind of impact right. that I could have as a developer. Mm-hmm. And so I was offered an opportunity with what became known as Oxford Development Company in their Boston office. Mm. And uh, it was basically a development associate or a development manager job. We moved, They moved us up there. What I didn't realize, um, they were a little disingenuous about it, was that part of the reason they did this was they, uh, they, they, part of the reason they hired me was they wanted to take advantage of the relationships I had developed in the four years that I was down here. And so every Monday, I'd get on an airplane and fly down to Baltimore, Washington. I'd fly back on Thursday and get to spend all of Friday working in the Boston area. And at the end of two years, well, three years, they came in and said, we're closing the Boston office and we're moving everybody back down to Bethesda Bethesda area. Well, initially to to this area, actually, Prince George's County initially. And a part of it was we had found a lot of opportunities down here. Part of it was at the time you couldn't do business in New England and at least the Boston area without paying people off. And we've never done business that way. What was the time frame of this now? The um, mid seventies. Has Boston really changed that much since then? Yeah, it it, it really has. I think it's changed a lot. We we had a deal 
in one of the close-in suburbs, and we needed a tax agreement. And our attorney came to us and said, "You know, we've gotten I've gotten a call from the from the tax authority. You can have your agreement." There are five members on the taxing authority. They'd each like $5,000. But so we had that project. We also had another one in a place called Arlington, Mass, that I actually got. They have town meetings. Every, every time 25 people get together in New England, they form a new government. And, you know, so Arlington is a small <laughs> town. They had a town meeting. Everybody went to the town meeting. And it happened to be the night, 1978, of one of the worst blizzards. I think the worst blizzard that it had hit Massachusetts in the century. In fact, the governor ended up closing down the roads for three days afterwards. Wow. But that night, you know, we were sitting there in this town hall building, and I'm, you know, doing everything a 26-year-old guy can do to persuade the crowd, and people are walking out. And lo and behold, I got my victory. I won. Unfortunately, those people who walked out sued on the grounds at that, or appealed, on the grounds that I had manipulated the weather to get my victory. And they won. Um, so so we, we found a local developer to send saw both of those projects to, closed up the office and moved back down here. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. So that was the start of my career with Oxford. So then uh, you established a development practice here for up until about 1986 when the tax law changed uh, and that caused Oxford to have some serious problems. Sure. Maybe you can explain what Oxford did and how they raised capital. I was running the mid-Atlantic region for Oxford, which was the region from Northern Virginia to um, New Hampshire. And we were doing development in, in that region. They had a region in uh, Indiana that was called the Midwest region. They had a region in the Carolinas. They had a region in Florida. They had a region in California. This was all part of an expansion that took place mostly during the 80s. And the tax law at the time was written in such a way that you had accelerated depreciation on apartment projects. And what that did was provide tremendous amount of write-offs against ordinary income. And unlike today where you have to be a principal in real estate in order to use that, back then, anybody can use it. And so we would finance our projects. We would typically get HUD financing, FHA financing. So you'd get 90% leverage. Then, which, which in and of itself created some tax shelter. Yeah. You then take all this tax shelter, you bundle it, and you work with people like Merrill Lynch or Drexel Burnham, and you syndicate it. Syndicating was a stockbroker calling a, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and saying, you can buy a part of this piece of real estate and you get all these tax losses that will shelter your ordinary income so you won't have to pay taxes. Well, it was perverse, first of all. I mean, it was awfully, it was just a dumb way. The public policy there, good luck explaining it. But furthermore, it naturally led to tremendous overbuilding. 
and as many apartments as we build today nationally, you know, we've been building more apartments in the past couple of years than we have in ages, actually since the late 80s. And we're building 300,000 to 400,000. Know, I don't think we've hit 400,000, 350. You go back to 84, 85, 86, and 87, and you'll see that we were delivering 700, 800,000 apartments nationally. And there weren't, the millennials hadn't even been born. <laughs> um, so in 1986, President Reagan and uh, Congressman who thankfully ultimately went to jail by the name of Dan Rostenkowski yes. got together and changed the tax code to eliminate this tax incentive. The problem was they did it retroactively. So they did it like that all at once. And the result was you, you suddenly had all this over-leveraged property. You know, no one was going to put any more equity into it. And companies like Oxford, whose entire business model almost was based on this, got into tremendous trouble. And when I say almost, it's because in 1982, I had gotten, begun to get frustrated by the fact that we were building all this real estate, but we had no long-term ownership in it. You were selling 99% of the ownership to people who were only interested in the tax laws. Fee development, basically. Um, so basically, we were in the fee development business. Yeah. And it just seemed to me that was a weird way to own real estate or to be in the real estate business. So I started doing these joint ventures for Oxford with institutions. And we did one with one or two with Copley, one or two with Cigna. That was sort of the side business. So in 86, late 86, late, late summer 86, I came back from a vacation. And one of my partners called me and said, have you seen your paycheck? And I said, no. But I looked at my paycheck. And my pay had been reduced 60%. Oh, so, so he and I called our boss and said, we kind of don't understand what, what's going on. It must have been a mistake. And he said, no, while you were, and we we're both away on vacation, not together, but, you know, his family and mine were not close, but, but, he, but we we're both away. In any case, my boss said, while you were away, and this is after the tax law passed, our banks came in and forced us to renegotiate our credit line. And part of what we had to do was cut the compensation of the top 10 people in the company. You guys, you two are among that. But, but I've got some good news. We're reorganizing, so you now have Tom responsibility for the East Coast, and Jack, you've got responsibility for the West Coast, and we're firing all those other guys. And I said, so wait a minute, we're going to make up with frequent flyer miles, but we're losing with pay. Anyhow, that was when I wrote a letter saying, I'll buy this, you know, I'll buy my operation. That was the first time, that was 86, that they, they all laughed. They thought that was very funny because my operation had been pretty profitable. Again, in 87, I tried, the company was going through never have to work at a company that is going through the kind of contraction agon death throes that and we're trying to survive trying everything to survive but people are getting laid off you're you're laying people off in any case we we 
finally, well, I tried maybe two more times in 87. And finally, in early 88, we, we were still in the mid-Atlantic region doing deals. We did, uh, we, we had a project we were going to do in Gaithersburg. And we brought it up to Copley Real Estate Advisors, who we had done a couple of joint ventures with us at, at Oxford. Copley was a newly formed pension fund advisor spinning off, a spinoff from New England Mutual Life Insurance. And company. they were one of your correspondents when you were at the Rouse Company. New England right? Mutual was. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's um, where your relationship came from. That's where the original relationship comes from. That's exactly right. And so we went up there and presented this deal in Gaithersburg, and as they typically do, they took some time. We came back, and, and the following day, I got a phone call from a fellow by the name of Kevin Mahoney, who said, Tom, I've got some good news and some bad news. And the good news is that we are going to fund this deal. Um, we've decided to go forward with it, but the condition is that nobody from Oxford, including your boss, can have any ownership interest in the project whatsoever. And you personally have to be the managing general partner. <laughs> I said, Kevin, how the hell am I supposed to tell my boss that? And, and, and he said, that's the bad news. Um, you have to figure it out. So I did. I called the fellow who I was working with, uh, working for. He responded far more thoughtfully and calmly than I would have done, I think. He said he wanted to think about it. He thought about it for a few hours and called me back and said, okay, I will sell you your operation for firm up, you know, you've been sending me offers that I've been ignoring. Firm up an offer, put some detail and teeth into it, and I'll sell you your operation. That's what led then to the formation of the Pazuto Group. So did you have assets in that organization at the time other than just personnel and the management structure that you had? Or was there any real estate that you brought with you at all? Or no. Not? I mean, you know, we had interests, but we had interests as limited partners in partnerships that had an interest in real estate. So, no, it was very complicated, and we had no real real estate. And, in fact, a lot of our personal equity was, or rather, our personal net worth was in the form of unpaid bonuses there's a lot of leap of faith, leaps of faith that take place. You know, we, I said to John earlier that I've never, I've never worked as hard in my life, negotiated as much, maybe as successfully, as I did during that period from January, whatever, 10th, 12th, 15th, whenever I had that phone call with Copley, to April 4th when we started the company. First of all, I've used the word I here up until this point, because at that point it was me. But the very first thing I did was to call a fellow by the name of Rick Moston, who had been my controller, but my closest friend. He had been pulled away from me to go to work in the corporate office. And I said, Rick, I need you to get back here because we're going to do And he and I had talked about setting up a company. And he had been involved every time I had written a letter. So I said, I need you back here. I'm going to do this. I, I don't want to do it without you. He said, I'll be there tomorrow. Be there being coming from Bethesda to Greenbelt, which is where our office was. John Slidell and Bernie Lubsher were two fellows who were in our development department, department very senior. Now, my idea, 
was that I was going to put together this company and they were all going to work for me. So that was the first negotiation. They uh, was negotiating with them. And what we negotiated was ultimately a company that was owned by the four of us. I was the majority and still am the majority stockholder. But, but uh, we put together that corporation. Then, and in fact, the thing I had done the very next day after talking to Oxford and getting their agreement that they were going to sell me the operation was go up to Boston and sit down with the Copley people and get them to agree that we would have an exclusive relationship and they would fund our equity on our apartment deals in, in this greater Washington area. Did you bring Rick and John with you? No, I didn't. You did not? No. At that point, I, had, I knew Rick was going to join me. I had no idea the others were. So I had that relationship. And then, of course, we had very little equity to put into the company. We had some, but as I said, a lot of our net worth was in unpaid bonuses from a company that was going underwater. So Rick managed to get a bank then called Maryland National Bank to give us a $2 million letter of credit, $2 million line of credit, rather, secured only by our personal guarantees. I've got to paint that picture a little deeper for you. Here we were, I was 40, John was 45, Bernie was 60, Rick was 35, approximately. Uh, we all had kids. All had kids, we were getting ready for college. Some of us, I had saved some money, John had saved some money. Now imagine going home and saying, looking to your spouse in the eyes and saying, I need you to agree, not only am I going to pledge everything we own, but the banks want to know that you're willing to sign and that you believe we're going to be successful. So you have to sign. So you have to put everything you have at risk. So we did that. The four of us did that. And then, but we needed some other equity. And um, it was the New England relationship that was really the foundation behind your decision to do that. Is that it was a much? couple of things. It was the New England relationship. It was also the deal we put together with Oxford. The deal we put together with Oxford was that we were taking from them a core of people, not just the three or four of us, but, but a core that was large enough to finish seven projects that were currently under construction. Um, oh, and we had it's a more than fee. just one deal. So <laughs> and we had seven projects under construction, okay. and all the way from Syracuse okay. to, um, to no. North Carolina. And we were getting fees. We had a line, we had, no, no. We had a stream of fee income for that. Okay. We also had agreed as part of the deal with Oxford to get a four or five, five, I think it was, development deals where we had land tied up. We had, in some cases, fairly far along in the approval process, other cases just beginning the approval process. So, so, we, so we had income coming in, we had projects to work on, we had people to do the work, and we had Copley saying they would provide equity. On and you had a strong real estate market in Washington at the we time, had, 1986, well, yeah, it was The apartment market was overbuilt, well, but we had people willing, we, we had banks who were anxious to put money out. And it was and a go-go so time in Washington. Was, I love recessions, and this was the beginning of a recession. Oh, and the last part was we needed some equity for working capital. Right. And I was introduced to a private equity 
firm called Bro Venture Land and Cattle Company. They were a, a Baltimore-based company. We put together a deal that worked for them, worked for us, but I'm very proud of because usually when you go to a venture capital company, they end up owning your company. These guys ended up owning an interest in the properties we were developing, but never took an interest in our company. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and we had the ability to pay them off. So, and which we did, we paid them off and, and they went on their way, but they're still getting checks from some of those properties. So they're very happy. Were they a limited partner then? They were a limited partner. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, okay. They were, they never, they were a limited partner in the project. Right. Uh, but you know, I convinced them. And thought did they subordinate the Copley or would they? Uh, oh yeah. They oh, just subordinated the company. They subordinated the company. But my thinking okay. was there would never be any no worth to Pizzuto as a company. And mm -hmm. The real value was in the properties we were creating. Yep. They believed that and, and you know, they didn't go far wrong with that investment decision. They're very pleased. They were very pleased. And, and I, I see, you know, I see them still occasionally. Oh, really? So yeah. are they, how long did they stay in your deals? We took, well, they're still in the deals. They're still in a couple of deals that we did really? back then and still getting checks. They're no longer investing with us, but that's more of a, that's, they're not investing in anything at this point. That's so, interesting. Anyhow, so that's, that's kind of, that's how we started the company. Yeah. And my rec recollection of the Bazudo group at the time is that you were mostly building garden apartments in the suburbs. There's not much urban right. look. You really didn't look at downtown Baltimore or downtown Washington, really, for opportunities at that time. No, that's true. But, you know, you will remember that that was the same period when the District of Columbia was, in, I don't know whether you'd say they were incentivizing office building developers or whether they were requiring office building developers but to figure out a way to set aside money to do housing because nobody was doing housing. It's not that we were the only ones not doing it. Nobody was doing housing in the city. In the city. Yeah, and that obviously changed when the demographics changed as time right. went on, right. of course. In the 1990s, when the markets were covering, you were growing your third-party businesses. How did that impact your company's growth and stability? When we... When we started the company, we were going to be, we were going to build and manage only those projects we developed. We wanted to have the best possible development management company because we saw that as a way of separating our company from other developers who come in and out of the market. But we wanted to have a construction company because we found when we used other contractors that they thought they were done when the roof was on and not necessarily worried about quality. But we were only going to manage and, de and, and develop for ourselves, but uh, manage and build for ourselves. But then in 92... Coming out of the recession. Coming out of the recession. Capital was in really short supply. It was. And we were sitting there saying... We, you know, and, and, and friends of mine were taking their companies and going public. That's right. You know, I was close yep. friends with the guy who ran Travel Pro in the area, Travel Pro Residential. And, yep. and, and, you know, he became Avalon Bay, Avalon, not Avalon Bay, 
Mike Savalon at the time. And we were seeing that all over. We, we knew we didn't have the same tax problems that were driving them to do that. But we knew we either needed to become a national apartment company or we needed to diversify what we were doing. At the same time, we got a call from one of our banks, in fact, Maryland National, that they had just foreclosed on an apartment project, an old apartment project over near the University of Maryland. And they wanted to know if we would manage it for them. And almost the same month, we got a call from a, a nonprofit group that we had been, we had a relationship with. We, I've never given up my involvement with affordable housing and this nonprofit group was doing an affordable project. They asked if we would consider building it for them. And so we, we sort of looked at ourselves and said, we get into the service business. We can keep our people, we can provide them opportunities without being forced to do development deals that don't make sense. So that's what led us to get into the third-party service business. But again, it was intended to be purely secondary to our development business. But, you know, once you put people into an area and say, you know, this is yours, you get the right people there. They're gonna they're gonna run and do great things with it, and that's and that's what happened with our with our management company and our construction company. Our management company, Julie Smith, was running. The next thing I know, you know, we're looking at being four thousand units, then ten thousand units. Today we're at eighty thousand units under management. Mm. Construction. Mike Schlegel. We, we went through a couple of people, but then Mike Schlegel came in to run it. And did the same thing. And today we're building, I think we have a backlog of about a billion and a half dollars worth of construction here. So third-party business has been good for us. Yeah, I remember probably in the mid-90s, you and Julie came to my office at Lake Mason and sat down and made a real presentation on property management because you were promoting that business at the time. You were doing a roadshow, basically, of the property management business at that moment. I used to joke about how... When Julie and I first started doing that, I would go and she would carry my bag. Then we would go and we would do it together. Then we would go and I would carry her bag. And then very quickly, I was totally unnecessary and never went. And I mean, no, she was great and she built. And the great thing is I mentioned Julie and I mentioned Mike. And, you know, together with Toby, they are the leadership of the company today and has created the opportunity to move Mark Wiesner up to be president of the construction company and uh, Stephanie Williams up to be the president of the management company. And they've continued to grow it. Mike is now the chief operating officer, Chief Julie, chief administrative officer, both working with Toby as the CEO. Rick Most and John Slato retired. I know that. And, um, yep. Although he still won't acknowledge this retirement. <laughs> Rick is still involved with the company in a very active way and working on doing we've we've created an insurance subsidiary and rick is uh, very involved in in overseeing that and i'll tell you what i do so it's it's a terrific place for the company to be there so tom let's uh, let's evolve to talk a little bit more about the 19 early 1990s as well the, the recession at that time and how you dealt with uh, at that time, you had the third-party 
management businesses we talked about and the other third-party businesses, but talk a little bit about how you dealt with risk at that time and basically the company's history with risk. But at that time, we had significant issues. That was, in my mind, in my experience, the worst recession we've gone, I've gone through in my career because of the SNL crisis and just basically complete shutdown of all development activity and, and, and lending and investing. In fact, banks were calling borrowers to call their loans, basically, because they were in desperate trouble. Well, I think it's probably a question, and these recessions are always a question of where you're sitting, but, but I, I think for us, the recession in 2008 and 9 was far more serious, far more consequential. And, but I think part of it is probably, you know, in 1992 and 91, which is when that recession was, we were a small company. We, we didn't have a lot of real estate that could have gone bad because our history didn't go back far enough to have done bad real estate. And the bad real estate we did was still left at Oxford and not, not because we were so smart. So in many respects, we were in really a pretty good place in 1991. 90, 1990, 91. I said earlier, I like recessions. Um, and I really meant that. And for all of you who uh, maybe were, you know, not in a position where you could really focus on the last recession, I'd say this, I like recessions because it forces you not to be complacent. You have to be thinking, and we, we, we in, in the first recession, 1991-92, we did a variety of new things. We got into, um, I, as I said earlier, we talked about just now, I got into all these service businesses. Not sure we thought of it at the time as getting into the service business. We thought of it as doing a couple of deals that would help us keep our people together. Ended up leading us into the service business. And the other thing we did is got into the home building business. I had, you know, I'd been in the, the, the apartment business my entire life. I was 42 years old, I guess, at the time, 43. I'd never built a home, let alone a condo. But we had a couple of things happen. One was we found a site that was a tweener. It was a great site, but it was too small to be a good apartment site. It was like 150 units. Secondly, I had run into a fellow by the name of Milt Schneider, but he was a local home builder, <laughs> who was said to me, my God, Tommy, you wouldn't believe all the money I'm making building suburban condominiums. You knowing what you know about apartments really ought to get into that business. And I have to admit, I was dragged into it by my partners, Rick, Rick and Bernie in particular, and a fellow by the name of Richard Bowles, who were with us at the time, was with us at the time, were really pushing us to get into the business. So we did. We did our first condominium project. We were selling condos as up in Baltimore uh, in the suburbs. They were averaging $70,000 a piece. And they were selling terrifically. And then we got halfway through that project, and the banker who had lent us the money on the project called and said she had just foreclosed on a, another condo project down in Prince George's County, and we were the only condo expert she knew, so would we mind taking over that project? So the next thing, and my equity partner, 
on that, who it was a couple or a couple of local guys, said uh, we and they had put up half the money on that first project. We put up half the money, and they said, "You guys are crazy. You don't need to put up any money. We'll put up all the money. You use your money to to expand your organization to find more of these deals, and we'll give you you know just show us the deals first, and we'll." until we turn you down once and we'll give you the equity for the deals. And so that worked. Um, and you know, for the next 15 years, it worked beautifully. It took us a while to learn how to build condos that would satisfy the customers. That was a process. We got through the recession by thinking on our feet. And I, you know, it was easier to do because there were 20, 25 of us, I guess at the time. This more recent recession was tougher because we had gotten too big. We had people working in the company who shouldn't have been working here. And so we had, again, as cruel as it is to say this, the recession gave us the excuse to get rid of some dead weight. It happens. So a couple of years ago, uh, I called Toby about a project in Pasadena, Maryland, which is a garden project that was a phase one that was built and it was an acquisition and then a development of a phase two it was a i would call it a class b project let's say class b b minus toby said you know john we're we're really not looking at that today we're really looking at much higher quality projects a little more of the class a more urban type of situation so obviously the criteria of the company evolved over the years and changed. Talk about, you know, what the Bazzuto groups, how that's evolved, why, and some of the issues that have yeah. that. Well, I, I don't know that particular site. And and, uh, and Toby and I haven't always seen eye to eye on sites. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but that's okay. John and I didn't recognize it and always, and it was part of what makes this a fun business. What's happened over time, well, first of all, I will tell you, as far as the company is concerned, yes, we will build downtown urban kind of projects or mixed-use projects like we're doing in Chevy Chase right now or we're doing, you know, projects over Metro like we're doing up in Quincy, Massachusetts right now. Mm-hmm. But we also will do a suburban project. We just finished a project and are leasing up a project in Watchapel. Sure, there are others that are just drawing a blank on, but we so we we will we've always tried to refrain from being a one trick pony. I mean, mm-hmm. if there's anything I learned from Oxford, it's the risk and danger of just doing one thing. I've always tried to run this as a diversified company, and I think Toby is doing the same thing. The problem I think the entire industry has gotten is that the costs of materials, the cost particularly of labor, and the cost of land driven up by excess regulation has put you in a situation where it's almost impossible to build workforce housing. And the marginal cost of taking a project and making it a super class A project is relatively insignificant related to the total cost of building the project. And, and so when I, I get so frustrated by these politicians 
who talk about affordable housing, but they're the same people who are imposing rules and regulations mm -hmm. that decrease affordability. And, I, and I'm not saying that the rules and regulations are wrong. I mean, here in Anne Arundel County recently, they've just put a new tree bill into place. That bill probably adds $5,000 a unit to the cost of housing. <laughs> You know, the bill was done to protect the Chesapeake Bay. I am a boater. I love the I have a place on the bay. I love the bay. So I'm not questioning the person who did its priorities. But I would say there's hypocrisy there when they pretend the next day they go out and talk about affordable housing and don't acknowledge that they've made the housing yeah. less affordable. Yeah. So, so that's why we're all forced as developers, every one of us, to compete for the same piece of ground because we're, we're zoned into building on very small pieces of ground. I mean, very few pieces of ground. So we bid up the price of the land. And then there was a study that the National Multifamily Housing Council did this past year that showed that 35%, 30 to 35% of the cost of an apartment is associated with public public regulation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's significant. And I don't mean to sound like some Neanderthal here who's saying, you know, damn the regulation, but I'm saying let's not be hypocrites and let's understand why we don't have affordable housing. It isn't because of the industry. It isn't because of those of us who are builders. It's because the government policies have put us in this box. Well, it's, you know, it's analogous to some extent to the, the change in the tax laws. And uh, it's just, you know, and you have these public-private partnerships that are developed now where <laughs> they're basically, you know, at the uh, on one side of the mouth they're saying one thing and then on the other side they're, right. they're doing exactly. something completely, you know, just the opposite. It's, exactly it doesn't right. make much and sense. And you wonder if it's a, either, it's got to be either ignorance or hypocrisy. It can't be both. I mean, it can't be, you know, it's got to be, it can't be anything else. It's got to be one or the other. Fascinating. But uh, a challenge we all have to face. So not all of you grown your company vertically with all the different services, but you've also grown geographically. And so when I first met you, you was just Baltimore and Washington. You were pretty adamant about that. I remember looking on your wall, you had a map with all of, with all these dots or, you know, yep. eggs on the wall. You may still have that map. I don't know. But it probably has the east half of the United States on it now, is my guess. But um, explain why, why you decided to grow geographically outside the region. We have grown completely organically. We've not bought anybody. We've not merged with anybody. We have joint ventures with people. Operators. We, operators. Yeah. Uh, developers. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a, there's a fellow up in the Philadelphia area we've joint ventured with a couple of times. We are in this Boston project working with a local developer who knows the local people better than we do. Part of our expansion has been driven by the management company. We've tried to run this whole company right from the very beginning as customer-focused customer client focus we're very focused on who rents our apartments we're also very focused once we got into the third party business on the needs and desires of our clients well a lot of our clients are institutions mm -hmm. 
And so when Northwestern Mutual says to you, we're building a project in who happens, by the way, to be one of your biggest partners, one of your best partners, uh, clients. And they say to you, we're building a project in Milwaukee. And, you know, we're talking to four or five of your competitors because you're not out here. Well, you say, we'll be there. You know, we come in. So part of what led us into Chicago, we had a client who had a beautiful downtown building, said, will you come out and take care of it? And I'm not being coy about who the client was. I just don't remember of it. We now manage, I think, 25 properties in Chicago. We purposely went to Boston with the management company. We now are developing in Boston. Mm -hmm. We went to Miami purposely, South Florida, and are looking around for development opportunities. It it was done because we felt there were opportunities in those markets to serve the customer who we serve. You know, some years ago, John, we did an analysis of who our customer was, or who rents our apartments, who buys our homes. And we, you know, a lot of thinking is about demographic blocks. You know, well, we're catering to millennials, we're catering. And what we concluded was, and we, we have a name for this group of people, and I can't even remember what we call them, but, but the, there are characteristics that run across the age group uh, that define who our customer is. And the characteristics are associated with their lifestyle behavior. And I'll just mention a couple of examples. These are people who value experiences more than possessions. They're generally people who, whether they have a lot of money or not a lot of money, they, they, they value education. I, guess I could go on, but I'm not going to. We, but, but you can imagine there, there are, we have a very complete analysis of who this customer is. And it's a customer who will pay a little more money. Even, by the way, affordable people who need affordable housing kind of fall into this category. There are some amongst them who will absolutely, you know, they're going to go and find the lowest price anywhere that they can. I mean, you know, we know people like that who have a lot of money. But then there are others who will pay a little extra to be treated specially. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've, that's, the, that's who our customer is. And so we've continued to just focus in and follow on that customer. People like to shop at Tiffany for a reason. Right, right, right. Not, um, not for price. <laughs> it's, it's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. And that's, and, you know, and, and, and I don't use that example or those examples only because it really runs across income levels. And it certainly runs across age levels. I mean, we'll, we'll have 20-year-olds and 80-year-olds who have more in common than two 20-year-olds. It's just, it's the... Living styles. Does that pervade throughout the company with regard to site selection, you know, finishes, architecture, the whole, all the whole development process? I assume it does have that. Yeah, it does. We, we, we have a very rigorous process and we've actually had this. We took it from Oxford. We've we've had this rigorous process where the senior people in the company meet an investment committee, typically it's, it's either once a week or once every two weeks to review deals. 
And the deals, the very first thing somebody will do once they've tied up a site and before spending any significant amount of money is get an arranged meeting with a market analyst, a our management people, the architect, the um, obviously the developer is running it to decide who's going to be living in this product. Who is our customer on this unique site? And we know who, as I said, that we have this customer. Well, what is it that's going to attract them to this site? And then that guides the design process throughout. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, and it's a very rigorous process. You know, you and I were talking earlier about the analysis of risk. First of all, I don't, I think our whole industry does a relatively poor job of, of evaluating risk and reward. And I don't hold us up as exemplars of it at all. But we, we try in every one of these meetings, as, as my colleagues in the room can tell you, I am not necessarily the most pleasant person in the room during these meetings because I think, I think it's my job at these meetings to teach everybody to be tough-minded. I'm sure in your years in banking, you've seen that we are an industry of wishful thinking. Of course. Um, we, you know, you, you will see so many people. I had a discussion today with a land seller who couldn't understand why, uh, since it would take two years to develop a property and then another two to build it, and I wouldn't be delivering it for five years from now, that I wasn't projecting that rents would be 15 to 20% higher than, than they are today. How could you not present, project 3%, 4% a year rent increases? And, you know, you might get lucky and have that happen. I've had it happen in my life occasionally where it actually works. I've also had it where the rents stay flat for three or four years. Or they go down. Or they go down. And so, you know, you, you establish some guidelines and you establish some rules and, and we kind of do that. And then you try and teach rigorous thinking and you hope you know you, you know you hope you're not blind to stuff and i'm sure we are on occasion so you to some extent you play devil's advocate in 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 some deals occasionally is that, is that I, I, I'm, I'm sure there is a um, satanic word there that i've been called by my <laughs> colleagues on more than one occasion yeah yeah, yeah. but it, but it's purposeful i had a good friend who chaired a bank and, and like me, was a cigar smoker only back then. You'd go into his board meetings or his uh, investment meetings at the bank, loan meetings, as his employees would tell me. And he'd be sitting there smoking a cigar and doing this. And, 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 and part of, <clears throat> and he, he really coached me on this. He said, you know, you have to, have to help your colleagues think rigorously. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's part of what you, you know, what I think you do as a leader. That's excellent. The, the business has evolved considerably over your career, Tom. Uh, yep. Describe some of the innovations that you believe had the greatest impact on developing and operating companies. What is happening today that is the most impact on the current business in your mind? You know, I, I would tell you that I think, I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question exactly the way you would like, John, but 
when, and I'm going to limit my comments to the apartment industry. Of course. It's a That's fascinating thing in the years that I've been in the apartment industry is how much more sophisticated it has become. When, when I cut my teeth in this industry, the apartment was typically, with the exception of Texas, the apartments nationally were being built by home builders who needed tank shelter. And there were very few, there were, there were some at Carl Freeman locally, but there were, there were very few apartment builders. And even the ones that did exist thought of themselves that way. They were apartment builders. And oh, shoot, you know, I got to manage this stuff. But I'll be small, you're your landlord here. Yeah, but 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 even then, the the management and you know I think the world about it, but 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 management was not a focus of what they did. Right, and they were going to develop and they were going to build and they were going to make money doing that, and then they hire and I you know I I saw it, my wife and I first moved into this area, we rented a very nice apartment, and it was brand new. And the and I'm not making this up. The manager was a lady who wore hair and rollers all the time, smoked cigarettes all the time, and her husband was a maintenance guy. Mm-hmm. We got evicted for having a cat, too, <laughs> which is why we've always allowed pets at our properties. Um, so what? And I give Trammell Crow and Mac Pogue at Lincoln. All the credit, and, and, and Leo Zickler at Oxford and a few others, all the credit for this because they brought professional apartment operations and management to this area and to the country, frankly. I think that is the biggest single change we've seen is that the business has become far more professional. Now, of course, in the past five years, we have seen all of the commercial developers get into the apartment business. And that's very different. When I first started doing business with Copley, they had maybe 50 partners across the country. Three of us were apartment guys. And we'd go to these meetings up in Boston where they would actually bring all their investors and all their developers together. And they were pretty unique in that. And Gerald Hines would go up and on the stage and, you know, and he would talk and, and the, the three of us apartment guys would stand in the back of the room convincing because nobody had any interest in what we were doing. That changed in 2001, 2002. And Jerry was sitting in the back of the room and we were on the stage. Well, I'm not sure he actually bothered coming at that point, but we were on the stage. What happened subsequently, subsequent to the recession, is a lot of the home builders have gotten into the apartment space. A lot of the office guys who were in the office space got into it. So I don't know where it's going. I really don't know where it's going. Clearly, we can't continue to build at the pace we've been building. I mean, it's, or at least the same kind of product. Now, I've been predicting a slowdown for three years, and it hadn't happened. I think it will happen. Well, construction costs are kind of forcing a lot of slowdown, depending on the market. But the other thing that you keep reading is there's this continual demand for housing that continues to grow, but it's mostly at the lower end of the spectrum. 
there's a tremendous unmet demand. And we've got to figure out one way or another how, how we're going to meet that. I don't know what it'll be. And when I talk about a correction, I think we'll see a slowdown. I don't know when it will happen. If you've been in this business long enough, you know these things come in waves. And we've ridden through waves before our cycles. And if it slows down, it'll come back up. And, and you kind of all want it to slow down. Because, frankly, there are people in this business who shouldn't be in the business right now. And there's capital coming into the business that shouldn't be coming into the business right now. And a little sorting out won't be a bad thing. Right. So one of the trends that's going on in the apartment sector right now is what I call kind of hotelization of the apartment space. Right. So there's several operating companies that are coming in that are leasing blocks of space in, off in apartment projects and then repositioning them, furnishing them, and you know, renting them out as hotel rooms, typically, uh, either on an extended basis or on a daily basis in some cases. What's your opinion of that business, and do you think that's going to be continue to grow? Is it a part of your, your investment strategy or, or not? Well, it is a part of our investment strategy, and we have aligned ourselves in a way that I'm not really sure I'm the best person in the company to speak about, to speak of and to address it. But what I will tell you is, I mentioned I was a believer in diversification. Yes. One of the things I learned a long time ago is I'm not smart enough to predict the future. I just don't have a clue what's going to happen. And so you try, and, and, I, and I think anybody who pretends to is lying, and maybe they'll get it right, but more likely than not, they're going to get it wrong. So I think if you're running a business, you try and posture yourself so if something really exciting happens, you have a stake in it, but you don't bet all of your marbles on it. And that's what we've tried to do with that business. I don't know. You know, there was a lot of talk five years ago, eight years ago, about how the future in the apartment business was going to be these tiny apartments. Right. I never believed that. So we didn't take any stake in it. I still don't believe it. We had those in our country years ago. They were called boarding houses, and we've torn a lot of them down. But that's me. That doesn't mean I'm right. It just means it's something I don't want to have any part of. It's hard to tell you where this business is going to go, and I will tell you only that it will be exciting and you know that it's a great place to be. Real estate is a great place to be, providing shelter to people. We don't think of it as shelter. We don't think of it as housing. In our company, we talk about building sanctuary because we try to integrate our development and management activities in such a way as to make the living experience of the resident as sanctuary-like as possible. So let's shift away from the market and talk a little bit about your company with regard to interface with employees and your culture a little bit. So when you interview people for the company, what characteristics do you look for from young professionals that you're interviewing? I once answered this years and years ago, and we've used this answer as I was asked this question at a conference once, and I answered it, and the answer has since become our guiding mantra. It's a lot easier to hire a nice person and teach them skills than it is to hire a skilled person and try and teach them to be nice. So the first characteristic we look for is culture. 
And we've had some real rock stars in the company whose culture was not compatible with ours, who we have escorted out of the company. And you, you need to be prepared to do that if you're running a business. Years ago, I mean, I'm talking about when we first started the company, we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time, thinking about how we were going to differentiate our company from other people. There are a lot of good competitors in this market. And we decided that the best way to do it was with culture and to build a company that had a truly unique culture. And just the fact that we were focusing only primarily on culture, I think, made us a little different. We, we took the whole company at that time, for many of us, 30 people, 35 people away, spent a couple of days talking about you know, what, what are our values, what are our values, and ultimately had reached no conclusion at all. So John Slidell and I came back to my office and sat down that afternoon, and we came up with the values that we thought described the company. We have built an entire culture around those values. We have hired people who demonstrate those values. We have trained people based around those values, and, and they're really simple. And, it's, and, and they're one-word Values is concern, creativity, passion, and perfection. People are always feeling the need to elaborate on what they mean, and starting with me. But the values we, we have are four values concern, creativity, passion, perfection. We say concern, we mean concern for each other first, concern for the communities where we're building, concern for the people we're, we're working with, concern ultimately, most importantly, for our clients and customers. Creativity, I always say to people, we're not, you know, you may be good looking, but we're not hiring you for your body. We're hiring you for your mind. So bring your ideas. And even if you're stealing them from your last employer, bring your ideas. Tell us to them. Tell them to us. Passion, we always say, if you're not feeling like you're really looking forward to coming to work here, go do something else, please, for your own sake and for ours. And perfection, you know, we all recognize that it may not be achievable, but we also recognize that Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, you know, I can go through the list, were human beings who came pretty close to achieving perfection, and there's no reason we can't try to strive for the same thing. So those are our values, and that's what we put the, built the company around. That's inspiring, Tom. Very inspiring. Shifting to your personal philosophy, uh, when you were fully engaged in multiple projects, how did you see the balance among family, business, and giving back? Anything you'd like to share? Yeah, you have to give us 100% to all three of those things. It's, how do you lose you know, 300%? <laughs> it's, it's a real problem. It's easier to work backwards. You know, we've always encouraged our employees, and, and particularly personally, you know, very highest level of the company. We've all been involved in the community, one way or another. You know, we've all been involved in a number of housing commissions, citizens planning, and housing organizations. A whole variety of things like that. We encourage that. We support it financially. I think any of my employees will tell you. Any of the people who work in the company will tell you that family and Italian. You know, family is is the beginning and the end of everything. If you read my book, you'll see that I talk about the importance of family. All of that being said, I live to work, as people 
beautiful thing. And and I remember once, more than once, having a conversation with my wife that said, do not expect me home for dinner, you know, except on weekends. You own me on the weekends. I will be here. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will be with the kids constantly. But during the week, I have to be out entertaining lenders. I have to be at zoning hearings. Fortunately, I married an extraordinary person who put up with that. This business, and maybe any business, is about showing up. It really is about showing up. I mean, you can't be in people's minds unless you show up. You can't find opportunities unless you put yourself into uncomfortable positions and suddenly you find you met somebody and it's leading to a new deal. So this is this this is a real change, John. The world today is, you know, and I, I watch Toby and I watch most of the people in the office and they're, you know, that that they they all they'll leave earlier, far earlier than I used to in their home with their families. The difference is they can be home and be, you know, they've got these these iPhones and iPads that allow them to resume work. We, we'd go home, we were home. You know, we weren't generally getting back on the telephone at the time. So I'm not sure I was a great example for anybody. So are you conscious about, you know, balancing? Obviously, your wife reminds you constantly, but, you know, I mean. Or well, this- at this point in my life, it's easier. But I'm still, you know, I'm still up and out every day and out you know, at least one night a week. And, mm-hmm. and my wife, I, you know, I mean, I, she's spectacular, but she's not an angel. She, too, has been very engaged in both a professional way and then per- and in a community way where she would have engagements in the evening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we've got to balance, balance it. Yeah. So, so now that you're chair and no longer CEO and day-to-day operations, are you doing things now in the community more than with, you might have a little more time to do that? What What are you doing now outside of the Bazudo Group activity? That, <laughs> well, uh, as I said, I've always been on a number of boards, even chaired boards. I chaired the Maryland Science Center. I chaired the Citizens Planning and Housing Association up in Baltimore. But you ain't chaired nothing until you've chaired a college board. <laughs> um, the the year I turned the company leadership over to Toby, I stepped up as chairman of the board of Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and the president of 18 years announced that he was retiring from that position, and I had to oversee a succession process. And at the same time, I decided to write this book. So, yeah, I'm very involved in activities. I continue as chair of the board at Hobart, although I, my, term, I, my term ends this spring, mm-hmm. but I'm chair-elect of the Baltimore Community Foundation, and I continue to be involved in 2030 and a number of the Greater Baltimore Committee and a number of other uh, civic organizations. I think it's really important. I, I always hesitate to tell this because of fear that other people will steal it. There is a Greek word from the old days of Greek. I don't know how many of you studied Western history, Western European history, but back in the days of of Greek leadership, there was a word called idiotus, I-D-I-O-T-U-S. 
who an, a, a person who is described as an idiotus was a person who does not take part in civic life at all. Just let other people do it. Idiotus is the root word for our word idiot. So, I mean, I think there's a lesson there. Um, you know, it's a lesson that I believe in. We, we have an obligation if the opportunity get, rises to be a member of our community. What lessons would you share both in career planning and in business performance to the young leaders here in, in the realm and also what are your, what major lessons would you, would you share? You, you know, career planning is such a fascinating concept. I, I, we've, we've had people and I've known people who are always sort of thinking the next job, what's the next job going to be? What's my next step? And, and it's, you know, the, the, the rap on the millennial is that everybody wants to be president of the company by the third year. My experience is that, and my counsel is, if you do your current job better than anybody else could possibly do it, you will find that you are being presented with opportunities to grow without you having to do a lot of stargazing. I mean, that's not to say you shouldn't be thinking about that ahead, but it's to say, focus on what you're doing. Be better at it than anybody else. And, you, you know, those people who are in charge will be looking at you for growing growth opportunities. So tell us about your biggest wins and failures along surprising or surprising events in the career. What are, the, what are your big wins and what are your big The losses? biggest failure... One of the the biggest mistakes was we had the opportunity to sell our home building business, our home building subsidiary in in 2006 for a whopping amount of money, tremendous amount of money, and we turned it down. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Do you know why you turned it down? Yeah, actually, we, I, we violated one of my cardinal rules. Actually, I don't know that it's in this book. But one of my cardinal rules is never count the other guy's money. You know, when you're making a deal, and I'll use your, 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 your business as an example, I've, I've seen so many developers who say, how did the broker do to earn a 100 basis point fee? Let's negotiate with them. And, you know, if he's brought you great financing, what the heck do you care if you got to pay him a one-point fee? On that deal, we had this investor I was telling you about who owned, who invested with us in our home building projects. Part of the deal, and he and I, he was a big old German guy, and we used to, very, very smart lawyer. And he and I used to go to a bar to negotiate our deals. And, by the fourth beer, he'd start negotiating and always have negotiate me. And one of the things he negotiated for was 20% of the ups if we ever sold a home building company. So we sat there like damn fools counting what he was going to be making and not counting what we were going to be making. You know, we sort of got what we deserved. We, you know, ended up losing an awful lot of money. Yeah, as the recession came shortly yeah. thereafter. Right. The home building business got to be pretty rough. It certainly did. And we lost a lot of money in the home building business in those following years that would have been transferred to somebody else. So in looking back, 
you know, when you formed the company to now, and what would you say is the biggest success in your experience? Forming this company. Forming. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I said at the very beginning of this, I'm a houser, you know, and my partners and I have built over 50,000 homes for people. You know, as you sit there and look back, you say, my God, that's a lot to be grateful for. Really blessed to be able to do that, but I think we've been equally blessed to have created a multi-generational company, an evergreen company, with thousands that has created jobs and careers for thousands of people. So you know, and we've financially done okay in the process. If your 25-year-old self were sitting here, what would you tell him? Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. What did you tell Toby when he came to you and said, I want to get into your business, Dad? And that actually, was a big surprise. Oh, actually, and you know the story, John, it was a shock. And Toby, Toby is a very talented musically. If you ever got a chance to listen to him play the piano, it's worth doing. He inherits that from his mother. He had a good job right out of college. He actually worked for Sony Records while he was in college, and then he had a job working in New York City for Electra Records. And, you know, it sounded like a wonderful job. He was the guy who you'd call if you wanted one of their bands as background for one of your advertisements if you were, you know, an ad agency. It was a great job. And one day I was up visiting J.P. Morgan, who was one of our partners, and we were, I invited Toby to lunch. And at lunch, he said, Dad, I want to come to work for you. It was the first time we had ever discussed it. I was, I was completely shocked. And maybe the smartest thing I did was to say, why don't you come down and talk to my partners, which gave me some breathing time. He came down a week later and met with a couple of our young employees as well as my partners. And John Slidell said to him, uh, and Toby was 23, I think, 24, something like that. And he said, look, stay where you are long enough, he probably was three or four months short of getting a promotion, to get a promotion. Then we'll help you get a job with somebody in our our industry. You do that for a couple of years, then go get a graduate degree, and then you'll be 27, 28, and you'll look like everybody else we hire. Well, Toby, if I had said that to him, I think he would have laughed, but coming from my Mm -hmm. partner, Toby did all that. He 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 went to work. We uh, he got his promotion up at Electra. We helped him get a job with Columbia National. He did that for a couple of years. Financed a bunch of Charles E. Smith apartment deals during that period of time. Then went to work for J.P. Morgan in New York City while he was getting his master's degree at NYU. And when he graduated, I said, "Okay, Toby, it's time to come to work. I'm going to offer you forty thousand dollars or whatever we were paying at the time. I think it was forty. And he said, gee, Dad, J.P. Morgan is offering me 70 to stay here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he negotiated and, and won, and we hired him. And, uh, but he started at a fairly low level in the company and worked in that, worked his way up for 13 years before he started reporting to me, and then reported to me for a couple of years before we you know, made him CEO. So he was with us 15 years. See, what I like to point out, he was with us half the life of the company. So I, I shouldn't take too much pride on what we did before he took over. He had to earn his, earn his stripes. Oh, yeah. No. 
And part of the logic, he and I, and John and Duncan Slidell, after uh, Toby after, and Duncan both joined us, went to a program at Harvard on families and business. And one of the things they teach, that John had it absolutely right, it, it's that, that someone who joins a family business four or five years, six years after getting out of school and has had the opportunity to work someplace where his name is not on the door is, is far more likely to be successful because he or she will understand what more like what it's like to be an employee than somebody who starts right out of school. So I think we're going to shift now to uh, questions, Q&A from the audience. So you guys are fully exhausted. <laughs> so uh, if anybody has a question, I ask you to come and stand right here so I can move the mic accordingly uh, in front of Tom. So does anybody have a question to ask? Or was Tom that thorough? <laughs> I think you were thorough, John, with all the questions. I think you covered the waterfront. Anything? Any questions at all? State your name. Sure. Uh, Dylan Bennett. Um, I work on the development team at JBG Smith here in Washington. Thank you for having us, Mr. Buzuda. Sure. I had this question before I came, and you kind of addressed uh, part, part of it during your conversation. You talked about the biggest change in the industry over the last you know, half century or whatever, um, whatnot, uh, as being the institutionalization of, of real estate. And you've got these heavyweights like Sam Zell, Stephen Ross, yourself, Gerald Hines, other folks who started from rather little means or not much uh, experience and kind of built their way up into these big companies. Do you think that doing that today is still possible? And because of the, the advent of such institutional uh, investors and, and developers that are already out there? It's a great question. And, and I, I have to curb my natural Pollyanna nature because, it, you know, I wanted to say, of course it is. I think it is, but it's harder because the numbers are bigger. I mean, even we find when we're developing an apartment project today, that whereas in you know, 19, 1988, we could get an apartment project started, total cost to do so was $500,000. To start one today is probably closer to 10 times that. And, and that's tough to do. On the other hand, I think there's so much for permit, there's so much change. I think there continue to be opportunities, if not to do exactly what we did, you know, to do something like, and I, I'll, I'll mention a local guy who used to work for us who and I haven't seen his balance sheet, but he seems to me to be doing pretty well, and that's a Martin Ditto. I mean, Martin worked for us, and I can't remember whether he, when he left exactly, but it hadn't been um, more than a decade. And you know, he's out there, and he hangs up his shield, and he, you know, and he's, you know, he does a tiny condo, and then he's doing slightly bigger projects, and now he's doing apartment projects, and I. You know, I mean, I full credit to Martin, he's a bright guy, but he's not a genius or no more of a genius than you probably are. So, I, yes, I think it's still possible and it's tough. But frankly, it was tough in 1988. Thank you. 
Connor Burke with Federal Realty. My question is kind of two prongs. So when approaching a project from an investment perspective, uh, how do you guys approach if it's something and maybe it's the circumstances dictated, you'll take an ownership stake in versus management? Um, and then also, how do you guys prefer to look at rental property versus for sale if that's all? you know, how the economics dictate the deal, or sometimes it's gut of a market you want to be in. Uh, just curious how you guys approach some of those. Repeat the second part. Um, I was so fascinated by the first part. I was thinking of my answer. and I didn't um, this, The second well. part was, um, in addition to both the stake you'll have in the project, for sale product for condos or towns versus rental product. How, how do you guys approach that? Okay. Okay. Good. Thank you. The, 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 well, the second part is sort of is easier. Apartment sites need to be bigger than home building sites. Then, then, then and even and even if, I mean, if you, what, what we learned through the Great Recession is that the risk associated with doing a lot of condos at one time is that the sales pace is never going to be. I mean, unless you get lucky, is such that you may have to go through two economic cycles before you finally get sold. So you want to keep a condo project. We want to keep a condo project relatively small. Apartment projects become inefficient under about 200 units. And so that's what drives that decision. As to what projects, I, I, you know, I thought you were going to ask a slightly different question when you started asking about how we determined whether we were going to bring, how we were going to own a project or manage it. Question I thought you were going to ask is how do we determine whether we're going to own a project with a joint venture institutional partner or a project that we do with friends and family and maybe the landowner? And we really do in our company try to balance our portfolio between those two um, kinds of properties. We we the the problem. In a, you know, I, in a perfect world, I would love to do everything that we just owned forever. The problem is we have to put our own equity in, and there's a limit on that. So we mix it up and probably do two projects with institutional partners. For every one we'll do that we can keep long term, and the institutional deals are not merchant build deals, but we know that they're going to be sold within a decade. And then as to management, we don't really do that kind of analysis. Either a deal works as a development deal or it doesn't work. If somebody else can make it work and wants us to manage it, we, you know, we're thrilled to do it. But, but we'll very seldom, well, that's my knowledge, we've never seen a site that we say, well, we can't make that work, but one of our clients can and we'll manage it for them. So, Answer your question. Yeah, okay, thank you. Michael Zaff from FCP. Thanks for having us. Sure. Quick question about the, I guess, back in the day when you guys started the property management business, um, how has that competitive landscape changed from then till now? That's a really interesting question. They, and because in some respects, it, it hasn't changed a tremendous amount. When we, I mean, I'd say we've done a much better job of knowing we, we have a much better sense of who we are and what distinguishes us today than we, we, we did when we started the management company. We did thrive and grow based on being a kind of boutique operation. It's 
difficult to say you're a boutique operation when you're 80,000 units under management. But as I mentioned, I still go out once a week and visit the properties because I, and you know, and on average, I'll visit a third of our properties every six months. So, so it's, you know, it's, and I think that's important in terms of keeping the company feeling as much as possible like a boutique. But there are not a lot of, I want to be very careful how I say this, but there are a lot of great development companies out there today um, who we compete with over and over again. But there are not a lot of property management companies out there that I consider or think of, and I, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I'm, there are not a lot that I think of that are anywhere near as good as we are. Third-party management companies. A few of our, a few of the development companies have good management companies managing their properties. A few of the REITs, and I have great respect for them. But, but I, I think, you know, several of the very largest third-party management companies have been so focused on growing and so busy worrying about acquiring other management companies that I don't think they're terribly good at all. We've always made property management a real priority in this company. And, and I, so I, you know, I think the landscape has changed, but not all that much. It's so interesting. That answer is going to get me in trouble, but I, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be arrogant. I, and I, and I, but I, I look at our competitors and with some exceptions, I don't see a tremendous amount of competition. Well, your comments earlier about the growth of the management company being driven by your institutional investors primarily, because they're the ones that, right. and obviously your growth continues as a result of them rating you probably as high, if not the highest, among the property management choices that they have to make going forward. So new business that's coming in is probably as a result of that. I, I a, a large part of it. I mean, we, we, work, we work to get new business. We work hard to get new business. We've also had localized clients like FCB, for example, you know, who've, who've chosen us to manage the properties, and we're very grateful for that. But, yeah, I think, you know, we always say the most important customer you'll ever have is the one you already have. That's right. And so you got to take care of them. And we work really hard to take care of our institutional all of our clients. Any other questions? You well, guys have been very patient. And for those of you who are not Bazudo employees, ULI folks, there are books with your name on them someplace. Are they over there? Thank you. Well, Tom, thank you very much for, huh? for participating in the podcast today. And thank you, uh, ULI mentees, for, for joining me today. And uh, uh, witnessing this and uh, to the listeners I hope you enjoyed it thank you thank you Tim